Well, we're continuing um, in the in the thinking series. Uh, this is the the fifth, I believe, the fifth uh, uh, sermon on it. Uh, and, and Mike started it. This is uh, the series. Uh, Andy Steger is the the person. And um, we, I want to start with just a review. Uh, today we're going to talk about is there death after life? Um, but we started with what is the meaning of life? And in here we learned that life finds its meaning in relationship. That, you know, for something to have meaning, it needs to be given meaning. It needs to have an author, and that God is the author. And as we looked at scripture, we saw that uh, that, that meaning was found in relationship with God and relationship with each other. And, and we looked at, at God and, and his nature uh, as that perfect example. So uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that uh, that I, ideal picture of what true relationship is, and, and the idea that we were created in God's image. And so we were built to have an intimate relationship with, with God in that way. And so that, that is what we learned was the, the meaning of life. And then we moved on to say, okay, well, you know, if that's true, then d- does God exist? I, is there a God? And, and so we looked at, you know, reasons to believe that, both in, in looking at the universe and, and the stars and, and looking more closely through the microscope and, and how we're made and the, the, just the great design and care and all the detail. And, and very conclusively, it's, you know, th- there, is, there has to be a creator. And even those who, d- who don't believe in God, you know, we talked about Richard Dawkins and belief of, like, still where did it all come from, you know? Even when what created nothing and, and even a belief that there's, you know, there's something eternal. They have a belief of some particles or whatever that's eternal. So clearly there is something that always has been. And, and it's probably just in our understanding of who God is. Um, and so clearly there's a God that, that created all things. And so if there's a God, we move to the question of, well, can we know him? Do, do all religions lead to God? And as we looked at that, we realized that you know, that's a, a real fallacy in thinking because not all religions even believe in God and, and most of them don't even try to get to God. So just you, the, the understanding of who God is. And, and the reality is we can't reach God. Um, and and most, no, no religion believes that you can, it, but the truth is that God can reach us, uh, that God is seeking us and wants a relationship with us. And so it is back and found in, in the meaning of life, uh, in this idea of, of relationship with God, that God is desiring this relationship and he is reaching to us. And then we went on to the question of evil. So if this is true, if God wants relationship with us, and this is the meaning of life, then doesn't evil get in the way of that? You know, how could, how could he be a good God if there is evil? Um, and, we, and, you know, what we looked at in there is that this actually isn't a contradiction. You know, the idea of, of a God that is loving can also be a God that allows evil. And, and it, you know, what can feel like a contradiction, really for God isn't. Um, he had reason to allow evil. And one of the, you know, the beliefs is it's free will, that God wanted us to have genuine relationships. Um, and to do that, he didn't want us to be robots. So in giving us that choice, it allowed for the possibility of, of evil. So it was Adam and Eve in the midst of that choice, who chose to allow evil to come in. And it broke that relationship. So the way we were created in God's image to have that type of relationship that the Father has with the Son, that was broken in that moment. And and that is why there is evil. And so then we move on from there to today. Okay, so is there life after death? 
so will we see each other again? Um, you know, and, and doesn't this idea, I mean, if you think about it, if we were made for relationship, if that is our purpose in life, then death, you know, what happens when you die? I mean, what, what happens to our bodies? They turn back to dust into, you know, nutrients, you know. If, wouldn't it seem that we were created to be fertilizer, not for relationships? I mean, that picture does not say relationship. That, really, that says fertilizer. So, um, and this is an important question. It's a question that we all have. It's a question that we don't like to talk about, you know, but it's inherent in all of us. And so we're going to unpack that today. And we're going to look at, you know, these words. When we say, is there life after death? What do we mean in these words? So I'm going to start with a question for you. So, um, what age would you like to live? 80, 90, 100, 120, 200, 500, 1,000? How, how, how long do you want to live? So the average American, when you put this out on average, it's 90. That is the average age that Americans would like to live. So we don't have a problem with death. We don't even have an expectation to live forever. We don't want to live to be 200. So why is that? Well, and it's because, it's because this life is broken. Um, you know, it's not death that bothers us. It's, it's, the, it's the pain inside of it. You know, there's disease, there's pain, there's broken relationships. Um, you know, I mean, there's people who long to die. You know, there, there's people who don't have any picture or an idea of what a good relationship is, who have maybe been subject to, to abuse and pain and just want to, escape, if you want to move forward the slides here. Um, you know, I, I think of it, how many times we've all heard stories of a, a couple who's been married for many years and the one spouse dies, right? And what happens? Well, sometimes it's days, weeks, or months that the other spouse will die too. So, you know, they're not afraid to let go of this world and move on. Um, so we don't have in us this desire to live forever, and, and for, you know, to some degree, sometimes people just want out. Um, so it's not death that, that is so important here. So when we ask, is there life after death? I guess I would argue it's not death that bothers us. It's our understanding of life. And it's, so then the question becomes, what happens when we die? Um, so I'm going to show you a chart here. This is uh, pulled from back from the 40s, I guess, 1944. It's the question of, do you believe in life after death? And you can see that this is actually unchanged, pretty much, uh, in people's beliefs, 76% all the way now to 73%. We believe, as people, that there's life after death. So this isn't a radical notion, and, and I think as we engage culture and people around us, it's a good starting point to realize that most people have a belief in life after death. Um, and what's interesting, if you go ahead to the next slide, um, do you believe in heaven? Well, what's really interesting about this is that's like 80 to 85 percent. So more people believe in heaven than believe in life after death. I'm not sure how that works. Um, <laughs> but we, we as a people have a belief that there is something more to come. And, and so what is that picture? Uh, I think this cartoon kind of demonstrates what a lot of people think that life after death is like. It's right where sitting on clouds, wearing diapers, playing harps. You know, it's probably pretty boring. Um, and, uh, 
You know, but I would say, you know, the other thing, though, too, in addition to this, you know, we do believe that it's going to be peaceful, that um, there's not going to be pain, and that we're going to be with the ones we love. That, that's a pretty common vision of, of what life after, after death is believed to be. So I have a question for you. So it's a quiz. How many of you believe that you'll spend eternity in heaven? All right. How many of you believe you're going to spend eternity on earth? All right, there you're, some of you are starting to go, wait a minute, is this a trick question? <laughs> so so uh, what I'm going to talk about is what heaven isn't. We're first going to talk about what life after death isn't, and then we're going to talk about what the Bible says that it is. So the first of all is we actually don't spend eternity in heaven, right? Maybe some of you are going, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I'm going to read for you Revelations 21, 1 to 3. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself would be with them as their God. So, you know, the, the earth and, and heaven pass away and they're made new or new ones come and, and so, you know, Jesus told us that he's gone away to prepare a place for us, right? And so he's preparing this new Jerusalem. And so as we get the new heaven and the new earth, uh, the new Jerusalem descends upon the earth, and this is where we're going to dwell with God forever. So when, when we, you know, talk about all the things Scripture says about heaven, pearly gates and the river of life and gold, that's actually descriptions of new Jerusalem. So we, we actually spend life in new Jerusalem. So it was kind of a trick question. Um, but that is, that's one of the fallacies. Uh, the, the other is we don't become angels. So when we go to heaven, we don't grow wings. We don't become the four-headed creature. We, you know what I mean? We're, we were created in God's image. Um, you know, when, when Jesus comes again, we get our new resurrection bodies that, that, are, that are made new, um, and, and that is how we live. So we don't become angels. Um, the, the third one is we don't know everything. Uh, sometimes we think, okay, when I get to heaven, I'll finally understand everything. Um, but we don't become God. Um, we will know God. We'll see his face and we'll, we'll, we'll know him. But we will have eternity to explore and understand the riches and the depths of, of God. Um, so we don't become all-knowing. We don't become all-powerful. All um, and it won't be boring. Um, <laughs> this, this picture of sitting on clouds, kind of being bored listening to harps. Um, Psalm 1611 tells us, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So joy and pleasures forevermore are certainly uh, pretty far from boring. So what does the Bible say? What is a a good picture of what life after death uh, looks like? Um, So a number of things. God will be with us. Um, we will see his face, you know, his face who man can't see, right, who would destroy us just by his glory. We're going to be able to see God's face. So that's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, we're going to live with Jesus. You know, we talked about how uh, Jesus has told us he's, he's gone to prepare a place for us that we can be with him, that where he is will be also. So we're going to be with Jesus in the place that he has prepared for us. We're going to eat, we're going to drink, so there's definitely going to be pleasure and enjoyment in, in relationship. Um, you know, m- there's music talked a lot about, so I believe the, the joy we had in worship this morning, we're going to continue to, to uh, 
respond and worship God um, in power and truth. Um, there's no night, there's no sun, no moon. You know, Jesus is our light. Uh, his, his glory lights us. There's no temple because he dwells among us. There's no death, mourning, crying, or pain. We're free from all evil. We'll rule over creation, and we will experience his glory. So these are, and we could, we could spend a whole sermon on heaven, but um, what I want you to get from this is just look at the aspect of the relationship with God. So this idea that, that God created us for relationship with him and others is, is true in what we see in descriptions of what life after death is like. That is, we, are, we will be with God and see him and know him, that, that we will see his face, that we will, um, you know, be in this spot of, of worship and, and together. So, so this definition of life that we have now in this life of meaning of life being relationship with God and each other is the same as the future picture of life, that it is this relationship with God that is restored. And you get this picture here, too. I mean, it really, you know, you, you think of, if you want to go back just a slide, the, as I was kind of looking at all these words, you know, uh, God tells us about, you know, the new Jerusalem comes down. It's like the, the bridegroom being prepared. You, you do see a picture of a wedding here. It was kind of what came to mind to me of just this celebration and togetherness and this union. And, and that is kind of this restoration that happens for us. And, and that is this great picture of, of life and life eternal. So I want to, um, this became very real for me, um, and I told myself I'm not going to cry today. So we'll see if I can hold true to that. Um, so this idea of, of death and life, um, November 15th, 2012, uh, I got that phone call. I had been sick. I'd been to the doctor, they'd done some tests, <clears throat> and I got that phone call that you dread. Uh, my whole life, I kind of dreaded it. It was the call from my doctor in the evening and said, your test came back, you have leukemia. And, and I re- you know, Solveig was on the phone too, which was great because she kept saying thought. You know, I, I, was, I was a mess at that point because in my head, leukemia equaled death. Um, I remember him saying, and he didn't know everything, but he was talking about you got to go to Sioux Falls tomorrow and you're going to have bone marrow transplant and all these things. And, and he didn't know everything either, but it just, you know, those words just felt like this is death. I, I'm, I'm going to die. And, and I remember as we hung up the phone and, you know, I started to make plans of what to do and, and talking to family. And I remember watching, I remember watching the kids that night. Clara's running on the treadmill, and uh, Calvin and Lydia. <clears throat> Not crying yet. <laughs> you know, but I, I just remember just being uh, entranced by them. Just, I remember all the pressures of life, right? So all the work pressures, the life pressures, the money pressures, all, all the things that weigh on us were gone in an instant. Just none of that mattered. It was just so focused and clear at what mattered. And it was the people. It was the relationships. It, it was my kids. It was Solveig. And I remember in that moment, I, in, and even through the days that followed, I didn't have fear of death. Death didn't bother me. What I was bothered by was that I wasn't going to be there. I wouldn't be there for the kids, you know, to help 
see them through kind of critical stages and developing, you know, <coughs> being prepared for life. I wouldn't be there for Solvay. That, that is what tore at me, was the loss of relationship, uh, the, the breaking of, of the relationships that we had. <coughs> so it became very clear to me, it was a very clarifying moment of, of what matters in life and, and life's meaning. Um, and it was interesting, too, because it was also a way of God breaking me down and showing me his heart. Uh, as we sang this morning, the, um, the song, You Won't Relent, that song had, had great meaning to me when I was hospitalized. And uh, it was just such a great picture of how God pursues us, his, his love that's so powerful. And, you know, and the words in there, they come from the song of, of Solomon, of just, you know, it's a love more powerful than death. And death's power is absolute. We are going to die but it's, it's this power of love that's stronger than death. And God pursues us with a power that, that is that strong. And so that picture, that meaning of life is found in relationships, um, is foundational. And so Jesus offers us this life. And what's interesting is it's life now. It's life before death. And it's the same life that we get to experience after death. So we get to, to have this restored relationship with him now that will continue on into eternity. So if, so if this is true, so if, so if God has created us for relationships, right, and, and that's the intent, well, we got a problem, right? We got a problem of what Adam and Eve did. We got evil in the way of this relationship. So how does God defeat evil? So God had a plan, and it was through Jesus, that he was going to conquer death and evil, um, you know, on the cross. This was, this was Jesus. This was the work that he was sent to do, that he was going to defeat it and create victory for us. And it's interesting, when we, when we, th- when we talk about Jesus and his name, the Messiah, the Christ, if, if you want to go forward a slide here, um, you know, what do those words mean? So the, the Hebrew word Messiah is the same as the Greek word Christ. So they're one and the same. The Old Testament Messiah, New Testament Christ. But the meaning of those words are anointed one. That's its meaning. And so what's interesting is, well, what do we know about anointing? What does the Bible teach about this? And so actually go back one. So that picture there of, of you know, that's an anointing of, of David, you know, to be king. You think of the anointing of Saul, first to be king. Um, you know, that was something that the prophets did. It was pouring oil on your head, and it was symbolic. It was symbolic of power. It was symbolic of truth. It was symbolic, and it was the working of the Holy Spirit back then and continued through Christ. And, and <laughs> um, scared me. <laughs> So I want to, if you want to jump ahead, I, I want to read to you. Let's, let's turn to 2 Kings, if you want to actually turn with me. Uh, I want to look at a, a picture to help you understand the, the power of anointing um, and, and how real it was. I think we use the word a lot today, but I want to ground ourselves in, in the truth of how Scripture looks at anointing. So we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 9. We're going to start in verses 1 to 3. So then Elisha, 
the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the, the next verses um, just kind of tell us how he did that. He, he, he came, uh, this, the servant of, of Elisha, he came, uh, the, the commanders of the armies were together, and he kind of pulls Jehu to the side. He's like, come here, I got something for you. So he pulls him to the side room, he pours the oil on his head, and he tells him what God has told him to say. So then we're going to jump ahead to verses 11 to 13. So now Jehu is emerging from this. So he comes out, the, the servant has ran off, right? So we'll pick it up in verse 11. So when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? What did this mad fellow, or why did this mad fellow come to you? So obviously it looked pretty strange, um, kind of pulling him aside and then fleeing out. And he said to them, ah, you know the fellow and his talk. So Jehu is basically trying to dismiss it like, But they said, no, that is not true. Tell us now. They wanted to know. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. So once they recognized that there was this anointing of the Lord, immediately, without question, with haste, they dropped and they worshiped and proclaimed Jehu's king. So anointing wasn't a small matter. It, 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 was, it was truth. It was real. And, and when God anointed, it meant that you were given a station of something that you were to do. And it was the work of the Holy Spirit that did it. So Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, all right, he had a job. Um, he was anointed to do something. Um, the Bible, and we'll see the verse later, but it talks about he was anointed with power. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus was anointed to do a work. So what was he anointed to do? Um, what was he anointed? What, why did, in, in, in the anointing, you know, you, you see when, uh, when John the Baptist ba- baptized him and the heavens opened and God spoke, this is my son and the spirit descended on him, Right? That, that's a, a good picture of, you know, him really being anointed. Um, so what was, what was his anointing? If, if Jehu is, was that you're going to be king, what was Jesus' anointing? Well, it was really to fulfill God's promise. Um, and it was to free his people from sin, evil, death, and to restore this relationship with God. Jesus' anointing was not to become king, right? Everybody believed the Messiah was going to come with power and right, and to kind of rule, Jesus was anointed to suffer, to be punished, to die, to restore relationship, to fix what Adam and Eve did, to, to, to rebuild this relationship in the way that we were meant, meant to have. And so it's interesting, that that seems complicated, right? I mean, wh- why not just forgive? You know, why did God have to do this? Why did he have to send his son and anoint him with a task this hard, why not just forgive? 
And, and this is an interesting question because I think as the world looks at, at things and the idea of sin and pain, you know, we look and say, well, why don't you just forgive? Why not have mercy? And, and I think we look at these ideas of mercy and justice as an or, right? You could have mercy or you could have justice. And the problem is, you know, we want both. I want mercy for the evil that I've done, and I want justice for the evil you've done to me. Right? I don't really want justice for, for the things I've done, but I want it for you. But yet evil demands justice. If, if God were just merciful, he wouldn't be just, right? If, if there was a judge who all he ever did was just let people off no matter what they did, that wouldn't be just. And if he was just and only punished and never had mercy, that wouldn't be good either. And so the, the, the reality is, our evil deserves punishment. And, it, and we've, all done, we've all done wrong. We've all hurt people that we love. We have all done evil, and it needs to be punished. So I want to give you an example. So these ideas, well, and, and as you think about mercy, actually go back one. As, as you think about mercy, you know, think of compassion, right? So as I have love for you and want to have compassion to you, that's the picture of mercy, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. So it, go forward now. So I'm going to give an example. So Ben Wiener's got a really nice Cadillac Escalade. So I, I had... I had some, I had some stuff I had to do. I had uh, a bunch of garbage I had to pick up, uh, yucky stuff, and it was kind of in really rough terrain. I didn't want to scratch up my truck or get it dirty, so I stole the keys out of Ben's pocket when he wasn't looking and went to kind of deal with all that and uh, was having a lot of fun and it was maybe a little too much fun. And if you want to go ahead, I... Not what I was intending, but... It happened. Well, and, and the other, the wor- to make it worse, I don't know if you know this about Ben, but he's not a big believer in insurance, so <laughs> he wasn't insured. So we don't have an easy way to fix this, and it's a, they tell me it's pretty expensive um, to fix. So let's talk about justice and mercy here. What's justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. What would justice look like? It would be me, you know, and the Bible talks about justice as it's, a, it's an a, appropriate thing, right? It's not too much. It's not too little. So it would be me fixing this, right, um, paying it uh, to have it restored. It, but, but what's interesting about justice is I can't define when justice has been satisfied, only the person that it's been done to. So Ben's the only one can, who can really say if justice has been served there. So there's the aspect of making it right with Ben. Adam Connor may say, you know, something like Grand Theft Auto or something. So there's maybe some justice to be paid, you know, with the laws of our land as well that, that would be demanded inside of here. So what would be mercy? So mercy would be me apologizing to Ben asking his forgiveness and him saying, you know what? It's all right. I forgive you. Right? That's mercy. That, that's me getting something I don't deserve. Him saying, you know what? Don't press charges. 
it's okay. You don't have to pay for it. It's all right. That's mercy. But what doesn't mercy do? Mercy doesn't fix his truck. Right? Every time he comes home, he's still got that thing sitting in the driveway. You know what I mean? Taking up space, causing issues because they can't get around now. Mercy didn't fix his truck. Mercy is his heart to me. It's his, he's got love for me. He's got compassion. He forgives me. But it doesn't fix the truck. There, there, there has to be justice still done to fix the truck. So let's talk about, so how do we do that? If, if it takes more, if it takes more than mercy... Let's look at um, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 to 25. You're familiar with this verse. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. All right, hang on. There's a lot in there, I know. Um, But the back of it, look at that last part. In his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay, this is mercy. So this was God. He gave us the sacrificial system, right, uh, in the temple and... And it, it was the shedding of blood of bulls, right? It, it didn't forgive the sins. It kind of washed over them, right? God, in his mercy and his forbearance and his patience, he passed over these formal sins, but it didn't pay for them. It didn't fix it, okay? It was just overlooking. If you look ahead of that, right? So, so it starts with, you know, we've sinned. So, right, we've done the crime. We wrecked the truck, Right? We're justified, we're made right. So that justice, that making right, is by grace as a gift, right? And it's through the redemption of Christ, what he did. And so, so justice is only accomplished through grace. Mercy isn't enough. We've got to go one step further to grace. So to deal with grace, um, if you want to move forward, a slide here. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. So let's talk about grace in the context of Ben now and his truck. So grace is Ben saying, you know what? I'm going to pay to fix my truck. So his forgiveness was mercy. Him paying to fix it is grace. But beyond that, Ben then calls me and says, Glenn, you and your family come over for supper tonight. We want to love you. And just continue, this doesn't matter. Uh, we want to love on you as a family. And we, when we get there, he whips out and he shows us this document, legal document. It's his will. He's written us in his will to inherit what he has. What is, he says, what is mine is now yours. That is grace. And that is the picture we have with Christ. The Bible tells us that we have been adopted as sons, right? We're co-heirs with Christ. So his, his mercy has, was to overlook these sins. His grace 
was to pay for them, right? And not just pay for them, but to go even further because it's this picture of relationship. The relationship he has with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that ideal picture is, is how he created us. He wants that relationship with us, right? So this is how far he'll go, this, this love that's more powerful than death, um, to restore us. So that's the picture of grace. If you want to flip forward, um, I want to read to you from Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. You're real familiar with the verses that come after this, but I want to look at these. But God, being rich in mercy, so here he is, he's merciful, because of the great love which with he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us to Christ Jesus. Right? So his mercy, he loved us so much that he gave us grace. Right? He made us alive with Christ. We're co-heirs with him. And what's great is on the end of this, this is where we live. He talks about in the coming ages. We're living in the coming ages. Right? So he gets to show, we get to experience his immeasurable riches of his grace. We get to experience life now. So that is the heart of the gospel. What does the gospel teach? It's this, that a relationship was broken, right? That God loved us in his mercy and his compassion to us, but that it required mercy and justice. Both had to be satisfied. If he was going to restore us to the way he created us, justice had to be there. So mercy was certainly there in his love, but, it, but this is where grace came in, that he paid, he satisfied the justice, and he went so much more because that picture of relationship is so much more. So that, that is the story, that is the hope we have, that is the truth of the gospel. But is it true? So if we're talking with those who don't believe in the Bible, who don't know this truth of the gospel, Right? who look at this question and say, is there meaning after life? Is this true? How can we have confidence that this message is true? So I want to look at that next. You know, what Jesus experienced was not a near-death experience. So, it, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of studies out there that look at the existence of life after death, and they study all these near-death experiences. And, you know, and so there's people who make great arguments, not faith-based, but arguments to believe that, yeah, there's life after death based on these near-death experiences. Well, what Jesus experienced wasn't a near-death experience. It was a death experience, right? Um, it, was, it was death and resurrection. So the, the question of truth of this is in, found in the resurrection. So let's look at just, if, if we're talking with a non-believer, what can we agree on? Okay, where's a common ground for us to start? And so there are some historical facts here that are not disputed. The, these would be um, supported, whether you're a believer or not, in the evidence that exists through history and, and the writings, both secular and Christian. We can all agree on these facts, okay? So first of all, Jesus was a historical figure. There's no question or debate if Jesus existed and lived and walked the earth. Uh, he was. He was crucified in Jerusalem. That's recorded fact, you know, during the reign of um, Imperior, Imperior Tiberius under Pontius Pilate. 
um, he was buried, right? Three days later, his body went missing. That's a recorded fact. His body disappeared. And there were reported appearances over the next 40 days. Um, So he did, you know, there's definitely a record that he appeared. And his disciples, his disciples were changed. You know, his disciples... His disciples believed that he was this Messiah coming to conquer, right, and usher in this this rule. And he had disciples who fled in the face of him being arrested. They weren't believing then, right? I mean, his disciples actually looked at Romans with, you know, anger. They they were the occupiers. There wasn't love towards the Romans. There wasn't even love towards the Gentiles more broadly, you know, the, the Jews were focused on the Jews. This is where love and compassion was, not to the Romans, certainly. But his disciples were changed. You know, Peter was changed from a bumbling idiot, right, to a pretty confident man in what he believed. There was definite change that anybody could observe. These men were different. And, you know, they were martyred for their beliefs. Um, and it was this belief, they proclaimed the resurrection of Christ. So his disciples believed in the historical fact that Jesus died and rose again, okay, as a historical fact. And, you know, this kind of shows the list of, of how his apostles are believed to have died. They believed it so much, right? They went out boldly proclaiming the truth of what, who Jesus is and what he did, that he, had, that he did rise again, that they were willing to be punished for it, and they were willing to die for it, right? They were willing to be crucified upside down or, or anything. So if, if it weren't true, that's a pretty big, you know, how many of you would be willing to be murdered for something that isn't true? Um, so clearly they believed. They were the witnesses. They believed uh, that it had happened. And I, would, and I would suggest, if you go to the next slide, these are my brothers, Dean and Travis. There is no way on earth that I would ever claim that they are God. There's no way on earth they would ever claim that I am God, let alone that we would rise from the dead. And Jude and James are Jesus' brothers, right? And they didn't believe when he was alive. They thought he was a little crazy, right? (laughs) But they experienced it. They saw it. They saw the resurrected Jesus. What would it take to convince you that your sibling is God? (laughs) Who would do that? These, These men both died for that belief. That's pretty convincing. So there's something here. So the the nature of our faith is rooted in this historical fact. Did Jesus raise, was he risen from the dead? Did, Did he, was he resurrected? So as you look at this, and, and go to the next slide here. Uh, some of you maybe kind of heard this discussion before of who Jesus was. He was, a, he was the Lord, he was a lunatic, or he was a liar. Right? So his disciples believed he was Lord. But there's only three possibilities of who Jesus could have been. And let me unpack this for you. So, so Jesus either was, a res- he either was the Son of God, 
who he claimed to be or he wasn't, right? Those are our two options. He was or he wasn't. So let's assume for a fact that he wasn't. Let's say Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He was just a good teacher. He was maybe a little confused, right? He, um, he was a good man. He walked the earth. Um, well, then you got two options. If, he, if he's not truly God, either he knew that he wasn't God or he didn't. So if he's not God and he knows he's not God, and he's walking around telling everybody he's God, and to follow him and to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and to do all these things, he's a lunatic, right? I mean, he is a cult leader, crazy man if he's claiming to be God and and telling us to to do these things, right? So if he knew that he wasn't God, that's what he'd have to be, he'd have to be a lunatic. Or sorry, he'd have to be a liar. Sorry, liar, 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 liar. If he doesn't know it, he's a liar. But if he if he's not God and he doesn't know it, then he's a lunatic, right? He doesn't even realize he's not God. He thinks he's God. So he either knows he's not and he's a liar or he's confused and he's a lunatic. Or he's God. He claimed to be God. Those are our three options. There's no option on here that allows for him to be a good teacher because he claimed to be the Son of God. So what's interesting then? So what did... Obviously, the, the disciples believed that Jesus was God, that he was resurrected. And I think the, what's really powerful is the words of Peter. And, and we're going to turn to Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 34. Because we're going to look at what did the apostles believe. So they saw him, they experienced his resurrection, And as they went forward, what did they proclaim? What did they see? What did they believe? So this is a section, this is right after Peter got his vision of the falling sheet, right? And so this was God revealing to to Peter that his love was not just for the Jews, it was to to the Gentiles. And at the same time, God gives a, a vision to Cornelius, a centurion, that says, and, and, and Cornelius was uh, pursuing God, and he, he told him to call for Peter. So this is Peter's words as he appears to Cornelius. So we're going to, uh, Acts 10, starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Right? So this is the beginning. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power after John baptized him. So he went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So you can feel the mercy in God, right? So he's got power, he's got anointing, he goes out and he does good. He's showing love, he's showing mercy to these people that are suffering. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, 
who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the people, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There it is. That's what they saw. They were the witnesses. They saw him alive. They saw his commands, right, to, to go forward. That they, His words, that if you believe, you'll be forgive, forgiven of your sins. And this is Peter the bold, right? Not Peter the confused. I mean, this is a transformed person who witnessed it, who through the power of the Holy Spirit understood truth, who proclaimed it boldly and was willing to die for what he saw. So that's pretty strong evidence that what we see in the Bible is true, that these people who experienced and and witnessed it witnessed truth. Truth that validates this understanding of the meaning of life. And we can know him. So the question is, what about you? Do you know him? Have you experienced not just knowledge, but have you experienced the truth of the gospel? Romans 10, 9-10 tells us, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with our heart we believe and are justified, and with our mouth we confess and are saved. So it is a, it's a belief in Jesus that he is the Son of God, that he conquered death, that he came to make it right for us because he wanted this relationship with us. He, he wanted to restore us to the way he made us, to, the, to, to experience the fullness of, of life and relationship with him. And all we need to do is believe. Believe that, yes, he did conquer death, that he did raise, that he is the son of God and that he, he was raised again. That is our belief in who he is and what he did. And we confess it. And so it's not a magic prayer, right? It, it's a belief and a confession. And, and the Bible tells us it's repentance then, right? And repentance is is action. It's, it's evidence. It's changing our mind. What I believed before, I'm going to walk away from, and I believe this, and I'm going to pursue Christ. If this is something you have not done, if, if it's clear to you today that you've never made that decision, it's time. And it starts with, with it's not hard, right? And I would encourage you, stay, linger, visit with an elder, visit with someone. Um, make this real. If you don't know what happens after you die, this is what God wants for you. But I also want to encourage you, there's many, if you have made this decision, there are many in your life. Studies tell us 25% of people don't know what happens when they die. One in four people that you will run into doesn't know the answer to this question. If you ask them what, hap- what happens when you die, they don't know. So we've gone through the series to really kind of equip you too to be able to engage, right? Engage somebody who maybe doesn't believe in the Bible, who doesn't believe in all of this. G- equip us with ways to, to communicate.
So let's, let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, boy, we're thankful for so much. Um, Lord, we're so unworthy of your grace. We're so unworthy, Lord, of, um, of your love. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us um, the apostles and their witness and their testimony, Lord, to give us uh, confidence in who you are. But most importantly, Lord, we're thankful that you have sent your Holy Spirit, that you speak to us, you reveal yourself to us, that we can know you, that we can have this relationship with you, Lord, that you created us to have. And so we just acknowledge that you are the Lord of, of all things, Lord, that you are worthy of all honor and praise. Um, Lord, I just pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, um, Lord, and you're speaking to their heart, that you would give them courage, Lord, to, to linger today, to, to connect and visit, Lord, to, um, to make this commitment. And I just pray, Lord, for courage for us, for those in our lives, Lord, that, that don't have this relationship with you, Lord, that, that you so desire that you would do anything to overcome death. Give us, Lord, just open eyes to the conversations, uh, create opportunities for us, just make us sensitive, Lord, to to the, the relationships you put us in for a purpose. We just thank you and love you. Amen.